0: Deep in us, shape and fashion us.
1: Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> to those of you who are mothers, I, I, I'm, I'm so thankful for you. I really truly am. If I understand it correctly, there are gonna be gifts in the back as you moms are leaving. Is that, tr- is that true or am I just making that up? Yes, I'm just making that up. No, yes, it's, it's true. That was my question. It's true. There will be gifts out there, so if you're a mom, make sure you stop by, and um, man, I don't know if I can actually give this permission, but if you're a mom-to-be, stop by there as well, because it's not really, well, it's still Mother's Day. Um, My gift to you moms uh, today is going to be the shortest message I can preach and still convey all the truth that... Uh, uh when i when i first put it together i i timed it and i knew i would have you out by at least 2:15 and so um, i thought maybe that wasn't the best use of your time on mother's day uh let me just say this i'm going to do everything that i can to have you out of here by 11:15 but if you uh if you're going to miss some, a reservation or something then please feel free to uh well just stay here and miss the reservation because that is why we're here after all but uh Let's just leave that as it is. This morning, we'll be continuing our studies in Paul's second letter to Timothy in a series that we've entitled, Be Strong in Grace. This is part 50, and entitled, The Soldier, the Athlete, and the Farmer, and we'll be unpacking 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 to 7, and I know that the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer sounds like the the start of a really bad joke, but I promise you, it's more than that, though... How it can be more than a bad joke, I, I don't know. Last week, we, we unpacked verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 and looked at those verses through the lens of the story from the, uh, the book of Acts, a story that recounted the beginning of the 20 year relationship that Paul and Timothy had. Um, as Paul laid a, uh, and Paul's relationship with Timothy, we, we do need to point out, was a unique relationship among the relationships that Paul had. Uh, Timothy's relationship with Paul was unique, but the way that Paul interacted with Timothy and the foundation that Paul laid in Timothy's life was not unique. Uh, he laid the foundation of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection in Timothy's life, the gospel of God's grace, we call that. And, and, uh, and so uh, what Paul did with Timothy that day, uh, early on in their ministry together, he's done with, he did with everyone, and, and that's what we've been trying to do uh, as, as we've studied First and Second Timothy. You may remember from last week that, that Paul believed that God entrusted the gospel to him personally. And Paul was always eager to pass the, the, that message, to entrust the gospel uh, to others who would then pass it along again, and that idea that drove Paul should also be driving us. I hope we picked that up last week, and by that, I mean that we should all be entrusting the gospel with others because we know that our time here is limited, and the day will come when we'll no longer have the capacity or the opportunity to pass that message along. The older I get, the more I realize that. Eventually, we'll be too old or too ill. Eventually, time will slip away from us. And all the good intentions that we had will turn to dust and we'll no longer have the time to entrust the gospel to other people and disciple them to entrust the gospel to still others. And I don't mean that we won't have time in the day. I know that, that we struggle to have time in the day now when we're so busy. But on that day, and we won't have any busy schedules anymore. I just mean that a day is going to come when our time here on earth will come to an end. The day will come when we'll no longer be able to lay the foundation of the gospel in the lives of others and we'll no longer be able to construct the building of discipleship on top of that foundation in their lives. That's where Paul finds himself as he writes to Timothy. Paul's in prison. He's very aware that his time is running out. And he'll even tell us later in the the letter as as we continue to read on that, That he's that he's very much like an Old Testament drink offering that has been nearly poured out and depleted. So Paul wrote to Timothy and said that there were those who had abandoned him when he stood to defend himself and the gospel before the magistrates there in Rome, and knowing that his time is nearly up, he charged Timothy to be strong in grace. Paul had always been the one to be strong in grace, but he was in prison now, and you may remember that Paul told Timothy that Onesiphorus had refreshed him, remember? Onesiphorus had searched him out there in Rome, and, 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 and been, he had been strong in grace when Paul needed that there in prison, and that had been a blessing to Paul. But as we said last week, Paul doesn't want Timothy to show up and refresh him. Paul wants Timothy to come to Rome to replace him. Paul is looking at the end of his life, and he's looking for a successor, And there really, in his mind, was only one man for the job. And in that pursuit, Paul will tell Timothy later in his letter that that he hopes Timothy will come to visit him very soon. In fact, he'll tell Timothy to make sure to come to Rome before winter. That's how limited Paul's time was. Now remember, Paul had had entrusted the ministry and the message of the gospel to Timothy, and as Paul comes to the end of his life, Paul wants Timothy to entrust that message to others who could then be relied upon to pass it on to others, who could then be relied upon to pass it on to still others. And it's as though Paul is already reckoning the fact that there'll come a day when even Timothy will no longer be able to uh, be reliable and uh, and to and to, to pass the gospel on to other people. Timothy's time will be up. Uh, look again at verses 1 and 2. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things you heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also, who will, who will also be qualified to teach others. This is not rocket science. Paul is asking Timothy to learn from him, <clears throat> and then pass along everything that he learned to other reliable people who will also be qualified to pass that along to other reliable people. And, well, just put the dot, 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 dot at the end of that. Because Paul is looking toward the end of time when Jesus comes back and what the gospel, and what the gospel would need in those. He's talking about four generations. I hope you see that there. He's responding to what Jesus taught in the Great Commission as he told us to go and make disciples. And, and part of making disciples is, ma- is making sure that those disciples that we make make other disciples and that though they then make sure that they make other disciples. And I know we keep repeating this pattern, but we have to be strong in grace. In order for this to actually happen, in order for this to pass from one generation to the next... The gospel is eternal, but it is also very generational. It's passed from one to the other. Mom and dad to their children, the children to the grandchildren, the grandchildren to the great-grandchildren, on into the future. And there was a point that we made last week, but we hurried over it 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 too quickly. And and I just want to make that point again, that the extinction of Christianity, the loss of the gospel, the end of the Jesus followers and the fading of the light, are always only one generation away. All it would take would be for our generation to twist and torque and break the gospel so that we can't pass it along to the next generation as pure and intact as it was when we received it from the generation that preceded us. Now, having said that, I realize that's a heavy statement, especially on Mother's Day, but having said that, I have to say that I don't believe for a minute that God is going to allow that to happen. I don't believe for a minute that he'll allow that to happen. And having told you what I don't believe, I'll tell you what I do believe. I believe that in every generation, God chooses and raises up people who will stand, stand for the gospel, people who will commit themselves to being strong in grace. I believe that in every generation, God raises up people who will entrust the entirety of the gospel to others who can believe the gospel and then pass it to the next generation and to the next. And I don't know about you, but I I feel a little bit like Donkey in Shrek. I want to jump up and down in his presence and say, pick me, pick me, pick me. Let me be one of those who, who holds the gospel pure and intact and passes it along to other people. And coming back to this thing of four four generations, I can tell you that as a young man, I often told myself, until I disciple someone who disciples someone who disciples someone, I haven't discipled anyone. Because generational discipleship implies that message being passed along. Not me discipling 100,000 people, but me discipling someone who disciples someone else and then doing that again and again and again until the message spreads out Broadly, but also deeply. We need to make it clear here that when Paul talks about this, he's not talking about just preaching the gospel, just as Jesus didn't talk about just preaching the gospel. Both Paul and Jesus spoke of making disciples. And Jesus cranked up this idea quite considerably in Luke 6.40 when he said, The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Some translations actually say just like their teacher. He's talking about the rabbi disciple relationship. Think about how that plays into what Paul has been telling Timothy. It's the same, uh, I've lost control here. Uh, it's probably 2564's fault, so no, I've lost control. There it is, 2 Timothy 2 1 and 2. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus and the things that you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses commit to other people, to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. I hope you can see the parallel there. Now, I know that we've been full of warnings of late of what will happen if we're, if we're not careful with the gospel, and I want to thank you for bearing up with that patiently, although I feel a little bit like an airline pilot right now, and he always says, you know, we're, we're, we're two hours late. Thank you for your patience, and I how do you know I've been patient? I've been sitting, for a just stomping. And I'm, I'm, I'm thanking you for your patience with all this warning that we have out there for, for the gospel and what's going to happen. But this morning, I want to flip that coin and, and look at this whole thing from the other side, from a different angle. So as we get busy with that, uh, please stand with me as we read aloud together. The passage we'll be unpacking this morning, 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 to 7. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, <clears throat> but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this." Thank you, you can take your seats, and as you do, whisper another prayer, like you did before the message, uh, that God will, would speak to you this morning from this passage. I mentioned that we've been talking a lot lately about what will happen if we are not careful with the gospel, this, but this morning, I'd, I'd like to talk with you about what could happen if we begin <coughs> taking the risk of sharing the gospel and passing it along to others. In fact, I'd like to describe to you this morning what that process has looked like in my life in a a few instances, uh, so that you can know what it can look like in your life as well. But I don't want to begin with a story about things that I've seen and experienced. I'd rather begin with a story from God's Word about some things that Paul experienced. And the reason that I want to do that is because I want us to see that Paul didn't just talk the talk. He walked the walk. The story from God's word this morning will come once again from the book of Acts, and will be, we'll look at some things that happened while Paul was not in prison, but was on mission. And I'm hoping that it'll illustrate for you what it looked like in the life of the Apostle Paul when he entrusted the truth to other people, and then those other people went on to entrust, entrust that same truth to other people, and well, so on. You know how that sentence ends. As you listen to the story, try to hear and understand that pattern as it plays out. And with that background, this is the story from God's Word from Acts chapter 18. Paul's been on the move, preaching the gospel and making disciples. And as the story begins, his recent travels have taken them to Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. And in all of those three places, Paul preached the gospel, and there were people who responded, powerfully responded to the news that Jesus had died for them. After Paul preached in Athens, there in the Areopagus, and and that building that uh, that site is still well, it's not alive, but it it's still there. He made his way to another of the major cities in the Roman Empire, in the ancient world there, a city called Corinth, the city that the, that the Romans had made the capital of Greece. So Paul went from Athens to Corinth, and as soon as he arrived in Corinth, He met a Jewish man named Aquila. Remember that name? He met a Jewish man named Aquila who had grown up in Pontus but had recently come from Rome uh, to Corinth with his wife Priscilla. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla likely had not wanted to come to to Corinth. They would have preferred to stay in Rome, but the emperor Claudius, uh, the fourth Roman emperor, had ordered the Jews, all the Jews, to leave Rome. Paul went to the home of of this couple for a visit and immediately struck up a friendship with them, and because he was a tent maker, just as they were, Paul stayed with them and worked with them. He joined them in their their profession. Paul worked with them making tents throughout the week, and then he spent every Sabbath, every Saturday, in the synagogue, reasoning with both the Jews and the Greeks and trying to persuade them to follow the Messiah, Jesus. Jesus. Things went well for Paul there in Corinth, and he wasn't chased out by the false teachers. And and so he ended up staying there for a year and a half, preaching and teaching that entire time. And at the end of his time there in Corinth, Paul sailed for Syria, planning to preach the gospel there as well. And as he headed for Syria, I love this, Aquila and Priscilla left their Corinth-based tent-making profession and went with Paul to minister with him. After arriving in Syria, <clears throat> Paul continued his journey to Ephesus, and once again, Aquila and Priscilla went with him. They're part of the team now. Paul taught and ministered in the synagogue there in Ephesus, and, and, and though the people in Ephesus asked him to stay longer, he ended up explaining to them that, I can't right now, I have other places that I need to go, but if God makes it possible, I'll come back as soon as I can. Paul then left for Ephesus and headed for Caesarea on his way to Jerusalem. And as he left Ephesus, Paul asked Aquila and Priscilla to remain behind there in Ephesus and continue the ministry there. And they were happy to do that. They did as Paul asked. So Paul left, uh, made his way from Caesarea to Jerusalem and then Antioch and from there to the region of Galatia and Phrygia, and he taught and strengthened uh, uh, the believers, and, and, and preach the gospel to those who hadn't heard it in all those places. In other words, Paul, Paul's on the move. Meanwhile, as Paul was doing all that traveling, and Aquila and Priscilla had settled into Ephesus, a Jewish man named Apollos, who was from Alexandria, Egypt, showed up there in Ephesus. Apollos was a very learned man who had a very thorough knowledge of the Jewish scriptures. He was a powerful speaker, and he spoke with real passion and enthusiasm about Jesus. And his teaching about Jesus was accurate, except for one thing. Apollos' knowledge of Jesus only went up to the day that he was baptized. That's all that Apollos knew. That was his whole message. And based on that, he was convincing people that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. In other words, Apollos knew nothing about the ministry of Jesus or the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So Apollos' message was powerful, but it was incomplete. One day, when Apollos had spoken boldly in the synagogue about Jesus, Aquila and Priscilla were there, and they heard him teach, and they immediately noticed how incomplete his understanding was of Jesus. So Aquila and Priscilla invited Apollos to their home, And they took the time to explain the way of God to him more clearly. Apollos accepted the help that Aquila and Priscilla offered and believed the good news that they they shared with him about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And not long after believing in Jesus and his death for him, Apollos wrote to the Jesus followers in the region of Achaia, and they invited him to come their way. And after arriving there, he was a great help to the believers as he vigorously Quotes, vigorously refuted his jewish opponents in public debate and proved from the hebrew scriptures that jesus was indeed the messiah and that is the story from god's word and before we move forward there are a couple things that i'd i'd like for you to see first i hope that you caught that progression Jesus entrusted the gospel to Paul, and Paul's life was transformed as Jesus himself took on the task of discipling the apostle Paul. I don't know if you know that about Paul. Paul was not discipled by a human being. He was discipled by Jesus. And if that part about Jesus being the one to to disciple the apostle Paul is troubling you, wander over to Galatians chapter 1 later today, and Paul will, will will explain to you, describe to you how all of that worked. So Jesus entrusted the gospel to Paul and then discipled Paul into ministry. Paul then met a Jewish couple named Aquila and Priscilla, and Paul entrusted the gospel to them and began to disciple them into the Christ life and into ministry as well. Aquila and Priscilla met a man named Apollos, who had believed in Jesus but had very incomplete information, didn't have the full story. So Aquila and Priscilla entrusted the full story to Apollos and took the time to explain the way of God to him more clearly. I love it. And then once again, Aquila and Priscilla, and then once Aquila and Priscilla had discipled Apollos and equipped equipped him to step into ministry, he went to Achaia where he vigorously refuted the Jewish opponents, and in, in public debate as he proved from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. And you may remember from when we studied Hebrews together that many believe, and, and I'm among them, that Apollos eventually wrote the book of Hebrews where he uses the Hebrew, the Hebrew Scriptures to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, it was heart and soul of his ministry. So please take note of the progression there in that story. From Jesus to Paul to Aquila and Priscilla, to Apollos, to the churches in Achaia, and quite possibly from Apollos to the very powerful book of Hebrews and to us today, one after the other. And also, please take note that that no one in that progression there dropped the ball. We're still able to carry the ball because there were no fumbles as they made their way down the field with the ball. We still have it in our possession today. We haven't lost possession of the gospel. And I have to say it, I don't think that it's enough to just be thankful that none of them dropped the ball. I think that it's important, it's imperative that we make up our minds that we carry the ball and and hand it off to as many people as we can so that future generations will have the sense that they are now carrying the gospel because we handed it off to them with the same care that was shown when those before us handed it to us. And I also want you to notice that we've been talking about keeping the gospel pure and intact, but we've just added a new dynamic to this thing of of standing with our arms crossed and keeping the gospel pure and intact, because now we're talking about handing off the gospel to others. And that adds a whole new dimension of risk to our lives as we take the gospel, something that's precious to us, and, and put it in the hands of people who will pass it along to still others in light of the fact that we won't always be here. I mean, think about it. This progression we talked about this morning all started with the relationship that began between Paul and Aquila and Priscilla. And I don't know if you realize it or not, but it was not safe to be friends with the Apostle Paul. In fact, being friends with the Apostle Paul was really quite hazardous. I, I mean, think about it this way. The story from God's Word that I told you this morning was from Acts chapter 18. And that means that the things that happened in the story happened around A.D. 49. That's when Acts chapter 18 unfolded. 49 A.D. was the year that Aquila and Priscilla stepped into ministry with Paul. I want to show you something that Paul wrote when he wrote his first letter to the Corinthian church five years after Aquila and Priscilla became Paul's co-workers. Look at this. Five years later, the churches in the province of Asia send you greetings... Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord and so does the church that meets in their house. Aquila and Priscilla had come from Corinth and now five years later Paul is writing and saying, I'm here with them, I've seen them recently, they wanted me to send greetings uh, from all the churches here in Asia but make sure that you know that they remember you fondly and, well, they're still working with Paul, but there's more. Paul wrote his letter to the Romans in about 57 A.D., so about eight years after Aquila and Priscilla uh, met Paul and became Paul's co-workers, he wrote this, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. And as we studied First and 2 Timothy, we've often remarked that 2 Timothy was the last letter that Paul wrote. He wrote it at about 67 A.D., so it's now 18 years since Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla began working together for the gospel. Look at how Paul ends his second letter to Timothy. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Inesiphorus. So if you've been tracking, to sum up these ideas, Paul met Aquila and Priscilla in 49 AD and began discipling them into ministry. And at the end of Paul's life, 18 years later, they're still on a steady course and still by all indications entrusting the gospel to other people nearly two, day, nearly two decades after Paul taught them to do that. And the thing that we dare not miss is the comment that that Paul made to the church at Rome when he said that Aquila and Priscilla had risked their lives for him. They risked their lives for Paul. Now, I can tell you that I can't find any story from God's Word that details what Paul was talking about when he wrote that, but we do know that all the Gentile churches were aware of what happened. Because Paul says, not only I, but all of the churches, all of the Gentiles are thankful to Aquila and Priscilla for what they did for me when they risked their life. And, and we know that <coughs> sorry, we know from we know from Paul's letters <coughs> that Timothy, wow, that's hard to do. It's not hand-eye coordination, it's hand coordination. I, th- I don't know what it is. Anyway, I believe it's very safe to assume, in other words, that Timothy knew Aquila and Priscilla and was aware of the incident where they risked their lives for the Apostle Paul. This guy that Paul keeps saying, don't be ashamed, don't be timid, don't, don't, don't. I believe it's safe to assume that Timothy knew. But I, I guess that begs the question was Paul really in danger? And if he was in danger, what was that danger? Uh, Maybe losing his job or being mocked or becoming unpopular. What exactly are we talking about here? Well, in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul wrote, very small, five times. Just listen to this if you can't see it. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked besides everything else. I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. I don't know about you, and and you can be the judge here, but i got to say, that sounds pretty dangerous to me. Now, perhaps it gives a little more context here to that thing that Paul keeps saying to Timothy when he asks Timothy to please not be ashamed of him. But in this passage this morning, Paul is going to crank that up several notches. Uh, his please be ashamed of me is going to turn into something else. Look at verse 3. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. It's as that passage that we just read from 2 Corinthians 11 is a is a travel brochure as Paul invites Timothy to join him in suffering, to, to take the plunge, to take the risk. But despite how Paul worded this here, we can be sure that Paul was not captivated by the suffering, all those things that he was in danger of, but by the rewards that came from the suffering. And Paul's about to make it clear that the rewards that come from suffering are both eternal and temporal. In other words, There will be rewards in heaven, but there will also be rewards right here on earth for those who take the plunge into the risk that comes from entrusting the gospel to other people. Still, Paul's invitation to Timothy to join him in suffering made me wonder, was Timothy facing the kind of dangers that Paul had faced? And was he already suffering for the gospel in the same way that Paul was suffering for the gospel? So I did a search through Acts and through all of Paul's writings, and I wasn't able to find anywhere that we're told that Timothy was beaten or imprisoned or suffered in any way because of his determination to share the gospel with other people. Remember, Paul has been asking Timothy to not be ashamed, that his mentor, Paul, is now in prison. But now Paul is asking him to join him as he suffers for the gospel. And I suppose that one of the things that that could mean is that Timothy himself might end up in prison. I mean, if you think about it, if he's really going to join Paul, then then maybe his days of freedom will come to an end. But having said that, i got to say that if someone in prison were to invite me to join them in suffering, I, I might be inclined to say that that was the worst invitation I have ever received. It might mean that Paul is really bad at giving a good invitation, but... It turns out that 2 Corinthians 11, with all its danger, is not the travel brochure. Instead, Paul provides Timothy with three deep incentives right here in this passage for him to take the plunge, to take the risk, to join Paul in his suffering for the gospel. Look at the incentives Paul shares with Timothy in verses 4 to 6. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. So how does Paul motivate? How is that motivating? Because Paul's just said, join me in suffering, and here's why. How does that motivate? Well, because he motivates Timothy by telling him that Jesus rewards those who suffer for him. And we don't have to wait till the sweet by and by to receive all of those rewards that Paul mentions there. They're available right here and now in the nasty now and now. But if Timothy wants those rewards, he'll have to spend more time entrusting the gospel to others and less time protecting himself and making himself comfortable. You know, in my own life, I can look back on the early days when we first moved in among the we were We were living in a... Well, I don't know how else to describe it other than a sparse house with a split rattan floor. We had walls of woven bamboo and a, a thatched roof that barely kept out the rain, and uh, especially when it got windy, and it often got windy there in Typhoon Alley. We didn't have running water. We had walking water and, that we fetched every day. We didn't have electricity, but we had this pressure uh, coal men kerosene lantern that, that provided light for any room that we took it into. And uh, as I said, it was sparse. I started into language learning right after we arrived there in the tribe and and soon ran into words that were difficult to pronounce, let alone fit into a sentence. I love you became katatakitantaka. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, became tinkatakitaka. Then kata takita nidiyo that meto to daging pa agitay magkasisot don anak nga na pase na itagad duse. God became your sin became impaak nga nidiyo that manaugi don amen. And God's amazing grace became kat maokaknag nga daging ma diyo. Then there were the words that were minimal pairs. Listen to this. Bukog is later. Beku is sister. Beku is wife. Beku is rat. And Beku is cockroach. And that doesn't sound too confusing. (laughs) But I knew it was going to be important for me to keep that straight because I had planned to teach the Old Testament stories to them first. And I knew that Abraham was going to have a conversation with Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, and tell him that his wife, Sarah, was really his sister. So that meant that Abraham would tell the Bukhu of Egypt that his Bukhu was really his Bukhu. <laughs> and I didn't want to say that Abraham was going to tell the Bukhu of Egypt that his Bukhu, his Bukhu was really his Bukhu, which would have meant that Abraham told the sister of Egypt that his rat was really his cockroach. Because I thought that would be confusing to the people that were listening to me teach. I, I did try to... Well, anyway... The day finally came when I'd passed all the language texts and and I was given permission to start teaching. I started with the story of God creating the angels and then told them about the day that, that Lucifer fell and then came to the creation of the heavens and the earth and how Adam and Eve broke their relationship with God by disobeying him. We talked about God banishing Adam and Eve from the garden and God's promise to send someone who would deal with the problem of sin forever. I told him the stories of the patriarchs and Moses and the exodus, the giving of the law, the building of the tabernacle where God would meet people if they brought a blood sacrifice. I told him the story about how Israel had lost God's law and brought idols into the place that should have been sacred to God's presence alone. I told them the stories of the captivity and and then the return from the captivity in bits and pieces to Israel followed by 400 years of silence when the line that had connected God to man just went dead. And then after telling them about that long silence, I told them that God sent the angel Gabriel to talk to a woman named Mary to tell her that though she had never been with a man, she would bear a son. And her son whom she would name Jesus would save his people from their sins. And when we had gotten that far, we started over. And I told the Old Testament stories again one by one until they really understood the plan that brought Jesus into this world. And at the end end of all that storytelling that second time through, I got all the leaders together and told them we were going to play a game. There were 50 or more of us in that old chapel and I told him that one of them was going to begin telling a story, the story of the creation of the angels and the fall of Lucifer. And, listen to this, here's the rules, if the man telling, them a story, if telling the story made a mistake or left something out or stopped making sense, then anyone else could stop him and point out where he had gone wrong. If the corrector was correct, then he would pick up the story at that point and we would continue like that until all the stories had been told. And, when the, and then when, the, when the, one, of the pe- one of the men storied the angel Gabriel having that conversation with Mary, then whoever was telling the story at that point would win the game. They got started in earnest. And believe me, they very enthusiastically, carefully pointed out when the storyteller had gotten it wrong. The storyteller kept changing among those 50 men. And two and a half hours later, The guy sitting over there, right over there, told the story about a conversation that happened between the angel Gabriel and a woman named Mary. And then they were all done. They were quite pleased, and I told them of a place called Dallas Theological Seminary where really smart people go to get trained for ministry. And I told them that if we were to ask this year's graduating class at Dallas Theological Seminary to do what they had just done, to tell that story from start to finish without leaving anything out. I told them that I think that they would run out of story. It would get dark be- long before they ran out of story because they would just ground to a halt. And I'm not, I'm not against the education at Dallas Theological. If you're going there or planning to go there, God bless you in that. It's just that that's not an important part of the training. And when I told them that, I have to admit that they that they smiled, but I can tell you that they were not nearly as thrilled as I was as I watched them work their way through those stories. I sat there listening and trying to keep up with them, and as I did, I thought of all the confusion and sleepless nights learning language in sparse surroundings, and I thought of the privilege I had been given to let go of civilian life for all those years. And as I listened to them telling that story, switching from one to the other, I turned my heart heavenward to my commanding officer and I said, are you seeing this? I hope you're pleased as you listen to what they're doing right now because I know that you know how hard we've all worked to get to this moment. Or as Paul put it, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Remember now that we've been talking about how Paul invited, urged Timothy to join him in his surroundings. So we're back to that question again. How does Paul motivate Timothy to join him in his sufferings? Well, secondly, he does that by reminding Timothy that there is an eternal reward waiting for him if he'll keep the gospel pure and not make up his own message as he goes along. About three weeks ago, an old friend from high school, my high school youth group, so I mean, this is like a hundred years ago, reached out to tell faith in me this, uh, a story. This friend is a year younger than I am, and she has two brothers and, and two sisters, and, and we've tried our best to stay in touch since the 70s, so this is a long time ago. She said in her text that her youngest sister, who is still in her 50s, is battling early onset Alzheimer's and has lost a lot of ground recently with many... Or most of her memories fading to black. My friend went to visit her sister, and while they're still able to communicate with one another, she wanted to make sure that her sister had believed the gospel and trusted Jesus to save her. Remarkably, while her sister has lost much of her memory, she clearly remembered a Sunday school class when she was just seven or eight years old. She told my friend that often on those Sundays the teacher shared the gospel with the class and My friend's sister believed, and not only that, but despite her memory loss, her sister is still able to clearly articulate the gospel. My friend that went on to say that the reason that she was sharing that story with us was because I was the one who had the privilege of teaching that, that lower elementary Sunday school class every Sunday back when I was in high school. I told you that story not because it makes me special, I'm sorry, but because it illustrates the power of the gospel. I taught that class all through high school, and I seriously doubt that any of those kids still remember anything else that I said, but the light of the gospel is still shining brightly in her heart, despite the disease that's darkening her memory. And so by now, this much should be clear. We have to be sure. We have to make sure to keep the gospel pure and intact, and we must entrust it to other people. In fact, we could say that the rules that govern sharing the gospel are simple. Keep the gospel pure and keep it intact as you pass it along. I told you that story because I, know, I want you to know that the gospel message that I shared with that Sunday school class way back then is the same message that I've repeated from this pulpit over and over and over. And when I share the gospel, I, I make a rule for myself that I will not try to be clever or convincing because I believe that that can can get in the way of being clear, concise, and correct. I also shared that story this morning because I know that many of you, many of you work with the kids here in our church. And you may think it's a thankless task, but I want to remind you that even if it feels like you're not getting anywhere, you just never know who you're talking to with one of those little ones out there, and you never know what's happening in their hearts. So engage their hearts and be careful with your message. Keep those two simple rules of of making sure that you keep the gospel pure and intact as you pass it along, and you can be sure that someday you'll stand in the presence of your Savior, and he will say, well done. You have been a good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your Lord, or as Paul put it, similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. We're still talking about how Paul motivated Timothy to want to share the gospel every time we have the chance, even if the person that we're talking to, it wasn't just Timothy, it's for all of us. Even if the person that we're talking to doesn't want to hear it, it's still worth taking the chance. So let's ask again, how does Paul motivate Timothy to join him in his sufferings? Well, thirdly, he does that by reminding Timothy that the hardworking farmer has the inside track on the first taste of the harvest. Uh, back in the 90s, I, was, I had an ongoing responsibility to teach at one of the larger churches in Metro Manila. At the time when everyone got together, there were about 7,000 in the church, so it was a whirlwind and a, and a vortex that kept us all busy 24-7, it seemed like. One day my secretary handed me a letter that was from France, and after puzzling over it for a few minutes how a letter had made it from France to Manila, I got out my letter opener and, and tore into it. It was, in fact, from Paris, from a woman whose name I did not recognize and could not pronounce. She, she began the letter by telling me that she was living in Paris and had moved there from French-speaking Africa. She went on to say that she had enjoyed Paris at first, but then the the letter took a dark turn when she told me that things shortly became overwhelming for her and finally a day came when uh, when she felt that the only thing that she could do was end her life. She went on to say that she is a very conscientious woman and knew that there were some things that she had to put in order before her last moment came. And so since she had a key, she went to the house of one of her Filipina friends to return a book that she had borrowed from her. She said that she let herself in and then walked over to the kitchen table, and then as she put the book down, she saw an audio tape on the the table entitled, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, and she added that the name J. Jackson was right below the title. I could hear the smile in her voice as she went on to say, I think that's you, and that's why I'm writing. The letter said that as she stood there at the table, she, she suddenly felt that it was important that she listened to the tape before she went ahead with her plan. She said that as she listened to the tape, uh, it was, in her words, exactly what I needed. And then she went on to tell me that she trusted Jesus and now she believes that Jesus died for her so that she could live forever. And it was that that took away the need to end her life. I had to wipe away the tears so that I could finish reading the letter. And later in the letter, I discovered that the girl who who lived in that particular apartment was from Manila and had been attending our church where I was teaching. One of her friends in Manila had been regularly sending her tapes of the messages, and as luck would have it, that tape arrived in time for that lady to find it on the table and listen to it before she went through with her plan. And by the way... (laughs) If you think luck had anything to do with that, then you have seriously underestimated the gospel of God's grace. Now, I've I've never met and never expect to meet the woman who wrote that letter, but I know the day will come when we'll all meet around the throne and be rewarded with the privilege of joining our voices together to praise Jesus for his finished work and the message of the gospel that proclaims that finished work. Will I recognize that woman or will I get to meet her when I finally, when we finally get there? I don't know. But I do know that she'll be standing in that massive crowd of people who are clothed in white as we lift up our voices to proclaim that the Lamb is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And I'm confident that she and I will be entirely too distracted by the Lamb of God to even bother looking for one another and I can tell you this morning that I'm okay if there's no recognition or reward that comes, from, uh, comes to me when I get to heaven because standing there in my office reading that letter was a wonderful first taste of heaven and what heaven will be like. Or as Paul put it, the hardworking farmer should be the first to share or receive, or receive a share of the crops. Paul's been willing to do the hard work and take the risks that come from sharing the gospel, even with people that may not want to hear it. And as we've been saying, Paul's now inviting Timothy to take the risk, to take the plunge, to jump in with both feet. And you may remember that we said there's no record in in any of Paul's writings or in the book of Acts that Timothy actually ended up in danger. But there's a little gem at the end of the book of Hebrews that I believe was written after Paul's death by Apollos who was discipled by someone that Paul discipled. And look at verse 23. I want you to know that our brother Timothy, 13:23. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come to him, come with him to see you. The writer calls Timothy his brother. And that's part of the reason that I don't think Paul wrote this, because if Paul had written this, Paul would have called Timothy his son, his son in the faith. Besides that, we know that Paul's in prison at the end of his life, waiting to be executed, and so he's not going to suggest that he's going to come with Timothy and and do anything. But in sorting all that out, don't miss what it says here about Timothy. It says that he has been released. (laughs) And that tells me two things. First, that that tells me that Timothy, shame on him, has been in jail. And secondly, the fact that he was in jail tells me that he took up Paul's challenge. That after sitting with Paul at the end of his life right there in the prison, Timothy realized that it was now his job to take the risk, to take the plunge. And, uh, and of course, I hope you know that I'm not just saying this about Timothy, I'm saying it to you. I'm talking to you about taking the risk, taking the plunge, getting involved in the danger of sharing the gospel and and discipling other people, and maybe you're sitting there saying, well, I am not convinced that it's for me, and that's okay. I get that, but you need to read verse 7. Reflect on what I'm saying. For the Lord will give you insight into all of this. So, maybe sometime this afternoon you need to sit down and just do some reflecting. Don't be looking at yourself in the mirror, that's just plain silly. Reflect on what we've been saying this morning, and God will give you insight into how you can be involved in all of this. In closing, let me read the passage to you one more time. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier. Of Christ Jesus, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. Will you stand with me in the presence And, Mom, I'm sorry I took so long. Let's pray. Father in our God, we we have a tendency to make ourselves comfortable. We call them first world problems, God, but but sometimes first world problems are are even more obstructive than, than third world problems when it comes to sharing the gospel, taking the risk jumping in with both feet, saying things that people may not want to hear against the possibility that they may just need it at that moment and believe it and have their lives turned around. God, help us to be out there, to put ourselves out there, to trust you with the outcome, to face the danger, to join with Paul and Timothy and their sufferings and and be willing to do what needs to be done to get the gospel out and, and to disciple other people We've taken a long time to say that simple thing, but there it is, God. Teach us as we reflect, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. First of all, have a good Mother's Day as you head out there. Uh, Secondly, jump in with both feet. Take the risk. Take the plunge. Go for it because you never know who you're talking to. Ready? Ready? Go get them, Potter's House, quick. You don't want to miss your reservations.